we will get into that next part, which is the great Ukrainian counteroffensive, which I'll say right off the bat is going much worse than was anticipated and hoped by the analysts and the outlets who were expecting Ukraine to finally break Russia and push them all the way back to the Black Sea. At least as of now, the offensive's gone on for about a week. Uh, we're going into the second week of the offensive now, but it hasn't gone very well for the Ukrainians. It's gone about as badly as I expected. Although, like with the, the topic of the demographics that we talked about briefly in the rapid fire segment, it's one thing to say that something's gonna happen. It's one thing to look and project forward to see what's going to happen based on previous results and the trends that you see. It's another thing to see that thing come to fruition. And now we're seeing that thing come to fruition. Because Ukraine's counteroffensive, while going on, Ukraine still hasn't, uh, they still haven't acknowledged that they are in this counteroffensive. They won't even say that they won't even say it. But Ukraine's counteroffensive is currently still at a standstill. Like there's there's back and forth a little bit in the northern parts of the Zaporizhia region, which is where the offensive has been primarily focused in uh, Zaporizhia. So it's not it's not the Kherson. They're not going for Kharkov. They're going for Zaporizhia, in again what looks to be an attempt at either an encirclement or an outflanking maneuver that forces that that makes the russian position in kherson untenable which from a a grand strategic point of view does make sense for the ukrainians to do rather than go straight at the russians in kherson you attack them and try to threaten their flanks the problem is that the russians are dug in and they have tank traps they have dragon's teeth which are like big stone almost pyramid stone slash concrete almost pyramids which are large enough to stop a tank from moving through it and you have really a lot of obstacles and you have barb they have barbed wire in some places but it's just it's a nightmare it's a nightmare for a defensive line with no bunkers it's one hell of a nightmare it is world war one incarnate built on a an incredibly short frame of time the russians were prepared for this and the ukrainians are now bashing their head against the one spot in the line that makes the most sense for them to attack from a, a grand strategy point of view but from a tactical point of view makes zero sense to attack it, make, it makes zero sense to attack because of how dug in and fortified the ukrainians are here like it it doesn't it, you you're not going to get through this because it's not just one defensive line it's defense in depth and which is another uh interesting thing to observe with this war because they're both russia and ukraine are abiding by or at least they were in the beginnings and to a lesser extent now it still holds true they were abiding by the same military doctrine which is the soviet doctrines that were prevalent during world war ii which is massing ma massive amounts of men you, you have deep battle, right? So you, you send men in, you don't send them in as a, a single unit to try to make a breakthrough. You send them in waves 
so that as they make contact with the line, you see what parts of the enemy line start to falter, and then you push your reserves into there, and you th then you push deep as far as you can behind the enemy lines, and you just make the enemy's position untenable, then they have to pull, pull back, and with a single battle, with by focusing your forces on the weakest point of the line, you can force an enemy to retreat, and if they don't retreat, you encircle them. So you've seen that those offensive tactics on both sides of this war. Uh, particularly, we saw it with the Kherson offensive, and we're seeing it now where the Ukrainians will send in thin waves of men at the line to try to test the line, the Russian lines, to see what places do and don't stack up, uh, do and don't hold up, I should say, to the offensives, and then they try to concentrate their forces on the weaker parts of the line, but the Russians have been very solid in their defense uh, in most cases. There's obviously the Russian withdrawal from the Kharkov region uh, towards a more consolidated line, and then there was the Russian withdrawal from Kherson after they had already essentially slaughtered tens of thousands of Ukrainians who had attacked the Russian lines. So that isn't exactly the best example of them succeeding, but we have observed that method of attack, the deep battle, where you send in waves and then you focus on one point after you've sort of jostled the enemy line. But the defensive side of that is defense in depth, which is where you have not just a front line and a back line, you have trench after trench line after defensive line after defensive line after dug in after dug in and it just goes on and on and on and the more you want and the more important it is to defend an area the more trenches you make and it just goes on for miles and miles to the point where sure you can get past one defensive line sure you can get past two or three but can you get past five can you get past ten well like it, it gets toxic it really does get toxic when you have enough men to execute it and that's what the soviets did to grind down the blitzkrieg especially in the bigger battles uh not necessarily stalingrad stalingrad was uh, the city but in once the soviets really got their act together and they had their men in the field and they were able to execute on their their doctrines they were really good on the defensive they were really good on the defensive, which is how they ground the, the Blitzkrieg to a halt. And then once the Soviets were the ones on the move, every time the Germans would try to counterattack, they just get ground down by line after line after line after line of Soviet defense. And then once they'd been all but halted, the Soviets would just close in on their flanks. Like, again, it, it gets toxic. <laughs> it gets really toxic when you see how many lines of defense that it... Uh, the the defenders might have and it's like okay well how in tarnation am i supposed to get past that well you're not supposed to it's the western front but applied to the, the vast spaces of the eastern front like again i'm referring to world war one here so instead of having one two or three trenches you just have trent and then miles of open space behind that for a reward for anyone who can get past your defenses which is what happened with the Maginot line, where you got past one defensive line, oh, and then you you have all access to all of France. Oh, you got past the this the Hindenburg line. Now you have access to all of Germany, instead of a single line. And you can even go back to earlier periods, like with the uh, the war between Prussia and Denmark, 
uh, over the Schleswig-Holstein Wars, where they they got past that one defensive line that the Danish had, and then they had access to all of Denmark. But with the defense in depth, there is no you get past the front line, the defensive line, and the backup line, and then you have access to miles of undefended land. No, it's line after line after line after line, and that's what the Russians have in Zaporizhia. But the Ukrainians are at the front line. They're fighting the Russians on the Russian front line. They have not made it to the defensive line, the first defensive line. And from what we can tell, the Russians have two really solid defensive lines and a number of others between. The Ukrainians have yet to make it to the first of the defensive lines. And they're already suffering these really large casualties. They're, they're suffering large numbers of casualties. They're losing even more tanks and armored vehicles. Uh, we talked about like 10 last time when it had just begun. But now we see that uh, we're a lot more of these tanks and armored vehicles have been destroyed. Ukrainian forces, again, have been all but halted. And uh, they haven't reached those defensive lines yet, which is the most impressive part about the Russian defense and perhaps the most disastrous feature of this offensive. They're taking really heavy losses with nowhere near the kinds of gains that would justify them. We've seen Leopard 2 tanks being confirmed as present on the battlefield, and around 10 or so have been destroyed out of the 60 which have been provided to them, and that number goes up by the day. There was a photo taken of a Russian soldier standing in front of a field where a number of burnt-out vehicles, which are believed to be American Bradleys, uh, those armored fighting vehicles, which in the picture you can see five. Uh, Alexander of the Durand cites that around 12 or so American Bradleys have been destroyed. He says a dozen, that could mean 12 or 13. We've seen a number of French tanks have been destroyed. So in total, we're looking at around 30 tanks and a similar number of uh, armored vehicles, or if not slightly higher number of armored vehicles like Bradley's and, and whatnot, have been confirmed to have either been destroyed or taken out of commission. Now we're waiting on more solid numbers for the casualties to come out, but as of now, we're looking at around, well, at the time that I wrote this, it was 7,000 casualties, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, and which was corroborated. Uh, well, I wouldn't say corroborated because these numbers are primarily coming out of the Russian side. The Ukrainians haven't spoken too much. But they were saying around 7,000 casualties, and that was Friday, which would have meant around 1,000 casualties a day since the beginning of this offensive. Which it means that around now we're looking at nine to 10,000 casualties as of my recording this potentially higher a thousand men a day the Russian Ministry of Defense said that Ukraine has lost up to 1200 men and 39 tanks within a 24-hour period uh, so that's the the high point of their single day losses of the Ukrainian side um, so yeah, that 39 number cooperates to 30. Now perhaps they're rounding up. You know, perhaps they they they've said they destroyed 39 tanks and it could be lower. Maybe it could be higher, but they're rounding down. 
we'll we'll find out in time but um 30 to 40 tanks still isn't good they were only given 60 uh, leopard twos they were given uh, 30 to uh, 40 tanks we gave them what 30 m1a ones we gave them 30 of our own tanks so if in theory in principle that could these losses that could have wiped out literally everything we just gave them not that long ago that's the entire force of tanks we just gave them now uh, in numbers not in terms of the actual equipment loss but in numbers of tanks that's all the tanks that we've given them destroyed they say that ukraine has lost 30 infantry fighting vehicles uh, again this is the russian ministry of defense because the Russian side is the only one who's really putting out numbers right now because the Ukrainians don't want to acknowledge that they are even in uh, their counteroffensive right now. The Ministry of Defense says that Ukraine has lost 30 infantry fighting vehicles, 38 armored fighting vehicles, and around 13 artillery pieces. They say where they were all destroyed. They lost, the defense, Ministry of Defense says that the Ukrainians lost two jets two Storm Shadow cruise missiles, these are the, the long-range missiles provided by Britain to the United, to the Ukraine, as well as 13 drones. They say that all those are destroyed, shot down by Russian air defenses. It's, it's a mess. A, a Ukraine can pretend that this hasn't begun. They can say that the counteroffensive hasn't begun as much as they want. But at this point, there's no real, there's really no hiding it, because you can you can call it a probing attack, but you, probing attacks don't lose ten thousand men in a week. Th that doesn't happen with a probing attack, certainly not in a war like this. You lose maybe a thousand if it's a probing attack, because your goal is not to try to break through; it's to test the defenses, see what's there, and then you get out. Probing attacks are, by their nature, low-casualty affairs. Not, we're going to lose 10,000 men in a week to test the Russian defenses. That's not how that goes. That's what you get when you're attacking and trying to take defenses. See? So, the Ukrainians are lying. <laughs> but who, maybe they just have a lot more in store, and they don't consider this the offensive because they're going to be committing... A lot more men to the attack later on so perhaps perhaps they are telling the truth and that the counteroffensive really hasn't begun oh we'll just leave that out there as a possibility but from the way i see it it looks like um they're saying that it hasn't begun until something good goes well until something goes well for them in the battle and then they'll go ah the great counteroffensive we've taken this that and the third so it's a possibility that it, it really hasn't begun and they they just have lots of men in reserve that they're planning to throw at the Russian lines as the last ditch attempt to bring the war to a solid conclusion or at the very least to put themselves in a better negotiating position. Or perhaps they are lying and that this is the offensive and it's going horribly for them and they're losing thousands of men every day well a thousand men every day i wouldn't say thousands but a thousand men every 24 hours that's terrible 
So we're uh, like I said that this offensive would be, it's going to just eat away at the Ukrainian reserves. You cannot sustain, you can't sustain a thousand losses a day. There's no sustaining that. There's no sustaining that. And if it, let's assume that this offensive goes on for a month, right? A month. You're talking 28, almost 30,000 men who will be taken out of the fight. Ukraine cannot afford losses like that. They, they can't. You cannot go on this way. Especially if the Russians are just going to sit there and bully you from behind their defensive lines. Like, this is not the way. Now, sure, you, you can say, what else are they supposed to do? And to which I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I, I really don't. If you're not, if if negotiating for peace isn't an option on the table for me to go with, I have no answer for you. What are they supposed to do? Hell, if I know, I'm just happy I'm not in their position. But I can tell you what they shouldn't be doing, and this is it: sending men against this defensive line when you can see that that defensive line is too strong for you. Now, again, perhaps the Ukrainians are planning on committing tens of thousands more men to these battles, and they're just trying to whittle away at Russian defensive lines until they can find something. They can find some falter, some chink in the armor that they can rush their reserves through. But I think that if they find that, they're just going to be put into a fire trap by the Russians and bombarded with Russian artillery. I really don't see how this ends well for the Ukrainians with them going on the offensive like this. And I said as much for months now that this is not going to end well for Ukraine. And they are doing exactly what I anticipated that they would do, meaning that it's going to end almost exactly the way that I said it would end for them, in disaster. They're going to lose tens of thousands of men. And that's if they stop after a month. Because with these equipment losses, I don't think they I don't think they can go on for a lot longer than a month, to tell you the truth. With, with equipment losses like these, where they're just they're just losing military vehicles that take us ages to produce, are being lost in days. It's it's insane. If they go on for two months, you're talking, oh my goodness, guys, guys, you're talking nearly sixty. You're talking the entire Battle of Bakhmut if they try to maintain this offensive at the current rates of loss for just two months if they try to fight this out for the rest of the summer while the the weather is still nice they're going to lose almost as many men as they lost in bakhmut right after losing the battle of bakhmut it i it's a disaster and hopefully they bring it to an end soon so they can they can preserve at least something Hopefully they realize that they're not going to get through and it's time to come to the negotiating table with no preconditions. Russia, what are your terms? And then we'll try to negotiate from there. That That's the only way out of this. They're not going to win through the mil- through a military solution. It It's not there for the Ukrainians. But it's going every bit as terribly as I thought it would. And there's still room for it to get worse. But... Uh, I'll, I'll move away from the Ukrainians for a second and sort of uh, talk.
talk about what else that we've learned from this offensive, not just that it's going terribly for Ukraine, not just that the Russians are more prepared than anyone expected that they would be, even the people who, like myself, thought that they would be ready for this offensive, they're a little too ready for me, okay? I, I, they're not even in their defensive lines yet, and they're beating it off. I'm like, okay, that's just toxic. But what we're also learning from this offensive is, and I suppose we also learned this over the course of the war, but with this offensive, really, with all these equipment losses, Western, we're learning that Western military equipment isn't anywhere near the degree of superiority that we've all been sold on when compared to Russian and foreign equipment. Because, like, throughout the war, they've been talking about this equipment. Oh, if we give them these Storm Shadow, oh, if we give them HIMARS and M777 howitzers, we give them M1A1 tanks and Leopard 2s, and we give them F-16s, and we give them Stingers and Javelins, they're, they're just going to win the war because um, our weapons are better than the Russians. If we give them pa air, Patriot air defense systems, they're going to just wipe the floor with the Russian air, air attacks. But none of that has occurred. None of that occurred. In fact, we're seeing Western military equipment get crumpled up and thrown into the trash can and then set on fire. Like that in one picture, you, you see this guy. And I encourage you to watch, uh, it was a Jackson Hinkle episode that I was watching when he put the picture up on the screen. And you can see this dude, this soldier standing in front of a field with like five Bradleys that are burnt out. They're, they're black. They are black as night in the middle of the day. So you can see them very well. They're all burnt out. They're all in a line. They're on a column and they're all dead. So what we're seeing is the destruction of this, this illusion of superiority of what the superiority of Western military equipment of American military equipment over all the other comp competitors. Now, granted long time observers who were honest with themselves would have seen that a lot sooner. Me, myself, I viewed it as equals because uh, Russia was the number two military in the world. So it's like, you don't get to be number two military in the world from a qualitative standpoint, because India and China had larger militaries, but in terms of quality, it was always Russia, United States, Russia, United States. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously their equipment has to be at least as good as ours, if not better in some regards. That's where I came in from this. But as this war goes on, and perhaps it's just because the Ukrainians aren't very good at using the equipment that we've given them because they haven't trained on it. I'm sure that if it was a battle between NATO and Russia proper, that NATO wouldn't have anywhere near the casualties as Ukraine because NATO would know how to use their own equipment very well. But it's telling. It's telling how the, 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 the ease at which the Russians are just wiping this equipment out. Maybe it's the lack of air cover. I'll, I'll give them that. Maybe it's the lack of air cover. Uh, even if these F-16s make it to Ukraine and it's sometime late summer, early fall, even if they make it over there, a handful of F-16s is not going to give Ukraine control of the skies. It's, it's really not. I don't even know why we've decided to play these games. It's just crazy. But... Perhaps it's because they don't have air cover. 
maybe maybe that's it. Maybe that's the reason that all these land vehicles are just getting absolutely washed. And maybe that's the reason the Ukrainian infantry is just getting dog walked right back into their trenches, either into their trenches or into a grave. Because without air cover, the armor is worthless. And without armor, infantry offensive just get lit up by machine gun fire. So without the air, you lose the war and you lose the war fast. So perhaps that is the the biggest flaw in this offensive here, the lack of air cover. And the Ukrainians are now paying an incredibly heavy price for that, trying to fight World War One against World War Two. It's it's bad. I, I don't know how else to put it. It's really bad for the Ukrainians on so many levels. And that's probably the reason why they're trying to resort to acts of terrorism as a form of warfare. Because if if it is so blatantly clear, especially now, that you're, you are not equipped to win at a conventional level, because if you don't have air cover, the Russians can just blow up all your stuff, and then it doesn't matter that you have all these Western tanks. It doesn't matter that you have all these Western armored vehicles. It doesn't matter that you have good infantry if the Russians can just blow you up the second your, your tanks start crossing the field. It doesn't matter. You lose. The end. And maybe that's why they, they're they starting to s- sort of shift towards the position that, okay, we can't win on the battlefield, so now we're going to start attacking behind enemy lines. We can't fight you fair and square, so now we're going to start biting and kicking and pulling your hair and poking your eyes out. And... I think that that's going to make it end even worse for Ukraine because then the Russians are going to treat it as a counterterrorism operation. And that means attacking the decision-making sensors, which is what we've been seeing the Russians start to do lately. We don't even know where Zeluzhny is. Uh, Zelensky still has yet to return to his country. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. And I don't expect it to get better for the Ukrainians over the course of this next week, as they are likely to start feeding in more troops towards weekend points or points that the Ukrainians perceive as having been weakened on the Russian line. And they just get absolutely mauled by Russian artillery. And another thing that is very noticeable in this war is the role of drones. It's not the bomber role that you see with the United States how we use drones as sort of an unmanned bomber vehicle where it has a missile, it can track you from way thousands of miles up, they can fire the missile, and you can hit you. But with the Russians and the Ukrainians, the not the way that the Russians and the Ukrainians have been using them. The Russians and Ukrainians use them for reconnaissance. You will fly the drone, the unmanned vehicle, over the enemy territory, over the enemy airspace, they will risk getting hit by a missile and being shot down by the enemy, which means you don't lose any men, but you lose equipment, but you don't lose men. And by having the drone do take on the dangerous work of scouting out the enemy lines, now you can target your artillery and your missiles on certain locations behind. Because with the drone, you have the drone up there, it can see everything with its camera, and then you have some dude on the ground with what essentially amounts to a, a military-grade iPad, he can see everything 
uh, with a, a slight delay, but the drone can have a laser de- a laser designator on it, and the guy with the iPad can go, okay, I want to call an airstrike right there. The drone will pop its laser designator on the target, and then you have the artillery, modern artillery, locking in on that laser designator, and then they fire off, and you get this, you can have great distances between the artillery and the place that you're bombing with the artillery and great distance between the missiles as well because it's not just basic uh, artillery where you're firing artillery shells but rocket artillery or multiple rocket launch systems where you're firing missiles at at a target you can have the drones call in the strike instead of having a, a a team go in and they have to do the laser laser designator or having a helicopter or anything like that, you have the unmanned vehicle go in, it can scout behind enemy lines, it can call in airstrikes, and it can give you a very clear picture with its cameras of what the enemy line looks like, and enemy troop movements and vehicle movements, and which places have the most dug-in defenses. Reconnaissance. Drones have really come into their own in modern warfare as a means of reconnaissance, rather than as a bomber. Because as a bomber, it, it really only fu- uh, functions well in uncontested airspace, which is what the U.S. has had in its wars for in the Middle East. But when contested airspace, it serves the purpose better as a reconnaissance vehicle. And then you leave the heavy, the heavy bombing towards multiple rocket launch systems and artillery. This is very much an artillery war. Perhaps it's just a difference of doctrine. And again, perhaps it's a difference of circumstance, but that's uh, one of the other things that we've observed with this war. So there will be lots of lessons to be learned from this. I I say it, I've said it a a number of times, but there are lots of lessons to learn from this war for those willing to see them. And I have the privilege of being able to see them. And I imagine that there will be militaries that adjust the way that they fight wars based on the outcomes and the conclusions of this war this the first really major war between combatants that can hit each other back instead of just oh the united states bombs some country that can't even defend itself we're seeing two countries that can really fight it out so this is a, a really good proving ground of military tactics and doctrine and the requirements that are needed to execute on tactics and doctrine so very very interesting and now we shall uh, uh leave it there i believe i've covered all my notes on this let's go this segment was taken from my podcast this week in geopolitics i have new episodes every monday so if you like what you heard consider giving me a follow thanks for listening and hopefully i'll see you next time servus <laughs>